This morning, we are in John 18, John chapter 18, and we begin, we begin the portion of the gospel of John to which all of the previous chapters have been pointing. Contrary to the opinion of liberal scholars, Jesus' life was not meant to serve merely as an example of how to live and how to love as God loves. Rather, Jesus was sent by God to be the grace of God that rescues sinners from the wrath of God. Let me say it again. Jesus was sent by God to be the grace of God, to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. I remember when my son was in, in Tennessee and that tornado ripped through his campus and virtually destroyed it. And yet, at the end, no one was killed. And someone was asking me about it from the local news media, and I said, yeah, it's hard to imagine, but I picture it like this. It's a, it's a living picture of the grace of God rescuing his people from the wrath of God. And that's why Jesus came. He came to rescue us, not from the devil, not from our sin per se. He came to rescue us from the wrath of God. You see, man's ultimate problem is not a health problem. It's not a financial problem. It's not a relationship problem. It's not a political problem. And for goodness sake, it is not an environmental problem. <laughs> man's ultimate problem is a wrath problem. We are children of wrath, or were, until Christ came. You see, God is fixed today in which he will pour out the fury of his just and holy wrath upon sinners. And how will anyone stand in that day? How will anyone stand? How will anyone not be consumed by the fire of his judgment? Unless God does something to save us from the condemnation we deserve, we are doomed. And I know that's no longer a message that, that's being preached from your average pulpit in America today, but this is the beginning of the gospel. We have to understand God's wrath and his judgment before we will understand his son. But God did do something because he is not only holy, he is not only righteous, he is also gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Amen? And the reason Jesus came was to stand between us and the fury of God's judgment, to bear the punishment for a world of sinners so that we can be reconciled to God. The term for this in the Bible is sometimes the word atonement. Atonement carries the idea of reconciling sinners to God. We sang about it this morning, if you were paying attention to what you were singing. It's the idea of reconciling sinners to God. It means to bring God and man together. It was actually William Tyndall who coined this term 
as he translated the Old Testament because he wanted a word that would communicate that by this action, that by, whether it be the sacrifice of the Old Testament or the sacrifice of the New Testament, by this action, God and man would be restored to their original unity and fellowship. By the appropriate sacrifice, the two, that is God and man, would be, listen, at one. And there wasn't a word for this in English. And so William Tyndall came up with it. And the word was at one meant. And we simply pronounce it atonement. Theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. Penal because it addresses the penalty that we owed because of our sin, and substitutionary, because in order to bring about the atonement between God and man, Jesus had to stand under God's wrath in our place. We sing that song every Easter. In my place condemned, he stood. And we just sang, all I have is Christ. What does that mean? It means my only hope is that he bore the wrath that was descending upon me. This is atonement. This is atonement. He had to offer himself as a substitute. This is why he came. He came to die, for the wages of sin is death. And throughout his ministry, he made it abundantly clear that he knew why he was here. He knew why he came. He knew what the end game was. He knew what lay ahead, and he frequently made statements, and I'll just give you a sampling. I actually put every one I could find in the Gospels on the page, and it ended up being a whole sermon, so I'll just give you four. Matthew 20, and this is the most explicit, Matthew, 18, uh, Matthew 20, 18 through 19. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and this is what he says to his disciples. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem... And the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and crucify him, and on the third day be raised again. And the disciples looked at each other and said, That's nice. Pass the matzah. What is he talking about? You can't get any clearer than this. This is exactly what happened. But they were incapable of comprehending this. Mark 8, 31, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 9, verse 12, it is written... It is written, okay, so he's speaking about Old Testament scripture here. There wasn't a New Testament yet. It is written, the Son of Man, it is written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And of course, one of the places it was written that he would suffer many things and be treated with contempt was Isaiah 53. And even after the resurrection, his disciples were still grappling with what all of this meant, and they didn't understand. And you remember on the, on the, way to, on the road to Emmaus, 
he comes and he starts walking with these two disciples and, and they don't know what to make of it. And Jesus says in Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, he says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? And the answer is yes. It was necessary for Jesus not only to live as a man, but also to die as our substitute. The cross is why he came. And today we step into that portion of John's gospel where Jesus' hour has come. His teaching ministry is over. His training of his disciples is complete, except for uh, intermittently during that 40 days after the resurrection. Now it's time for the innocent son to suffer as one who had committed the highest crimes against the thrice holy God. And he would do it at the hands of evil men. When you think of Jesus making atonement for sinners, I mean, don't we naturally think immediately of his suffering and dying on the cross? But I would submit to you that what John and the other gospel writers want us to see is it didn't start when the nails went into his feet and hands. It started really from birth. But it starts in earnest here. John 18. And this is what we're going to see for the next several weeks. Isaiah 53 says this, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. It's like when you see someone, you just, you can't stand to look at him. You just, you hide your face. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. It's amazing when you correspond this to what actually took place when Jesus came. Because John tells us in chapter 1, he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. And one day, they will look back on him whom they had pierced. And they will say these words, we despised him, we did not esteem him. The key passage, or the key verse in this passage, is verse 11. While rebuking Peter for his attempt to sabotage Judas's treachery, Jesus says these words, this is 18.11, put your sword into its sheath. And here's the key phrase, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup which the Father has given me, Peter, are you trying to keep me from drinking it? And in case it's not immediately evident what Jesus means by the cup which the Father has given me, we merely need to take a short flurry back into the Old Testament and look. We don't have time to dig back there today, but I would encourage you to go back to Isaiah and to Jeremiah where God sends his prophet to take the cup of his anger and wrath and make the nations drink of it. 
so consuming would the wrath of God be against his enemies in those days that he compares it to being completely intoxicated by the wrath of God so that every part of their being, these nations, would be overcome by his wrath. It is a picture of being intoxicated to death. And this is what Jesus would do on our behalf. Now, beloved, you hear words like wrath, judgment, fury, fire. But I want to tell you up front, this passage is all about grace. It's all about grace. Because Jesus came to save us from all of that. This is what Jesus was facing. He had come to drink the cup of the wrath to the dregs so that we could spend eternity drinking the cup of God's favor and blessing in his presence forever. Now, this is a significant passage in terms of length, and uh, I hope to get us all the way to verse 27, and we haven't started at verse 1 yet, but I think we'll make it. With that in mind, I'd like to break this down only into two parts. Um, Two sections, I will call them, because the focus here is on Jesus drinking the cup. I just want to divide it into two, to two categories, the cup propitiation and the cup of substitution. The cup of propitiation and the cup of substitution. First, in order to make atonement for us, Jesus must make propitiation for our sins. And second, He must do it as our substitute. He must do it in my place. Hence, the whole whole purpose for that, that brief interlude, that brief narrative about Barabbas. The whole thing about Barabbas is, in my place, condemned he stood. So let's start with the first, the cup of propitiation. Verses 1 through 11. Now, propitiation is not a word we commonly use, but it is important. If you're wanting to spell it, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. Propitiation. It's not a word we commonly use, but it's important when you're wrestling with the theological truth that undergirds the gospel. It refers to the act of appeasing another person's anger by offering a gift Typically, this would be a king who is angry at his subject. And the king's anger is assuaged, it's satisfied by the offering of a gift. It may be the payment that was due. It's a term used in the New Testament four times. Romans chapter 3. Romans is all about the gospel. Where do we get righteousness from? Romans 3, Hebrews 2, Hebrews, which is all about the high priest, who is Jesus, making sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who is also Jesus. And then in 1 John, twice, John speaks about it. In each of these cases, Jesus is offered, Jesus offers to God's, before God's court, He offers a spotless lamb to make atonement. In Jesus' case, he is both the high priest 
and he is the sacrifice. He is the high priest who offers the Lamb of God, who is none other than himself, who dies for the guilt of sinners. And then here in chapter 18, we read the beginning of this sacrifice. The sacrifice is now being prepared for the slaughter. And so we read verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, now you could take that to mean chapter 17, or you could take it to be the whole upper room discourse starting with chapter 13. It was all teaching, except for the last chapter, which was all prayer. When Jesus had finished speaking these words, he sent He went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, the idea is at the same time he is betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. The most striking feature of this passage is the fact that that Jesus is not presented as a passive sacrifice, but as one who has taken charge of the whole affair. He's taken charge of the whole thing to make sure it is accomplished, and we will see this throughout. Now, if you were aware that this very night you were being betrayed by your bloodthirsty enemies because of the treachery of one of your own, what would you do? Let's say it was one of your adult children has turned you in and has falsely accused you. What would you do? My guess is you would try to think of some safe place where not even those closest to you would think of looking for you there. You would run, you would hide. Not Jesus. He purposely takes his men to the place where he is most likely to be found, the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knew that Jesus would go there, and Jesus knew that Judas knew that he would go there. Going to Gethsemane was an intentional calculation. And so Hendrickson writes, the good shepherd is not going to be caught. No, he is going to lay down his life as a willing sacrifice. Jesus will say, the Father loves me because I lay my life down. I have the the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And later on, he'll be speaking with Pilate, And Pilate will say, don't you realize that I have the authority to take your life? To which Jesus, who's already been beaten, already been scourged, on his way to the cross, he's a bloody mess, he's got thorns on his head, this purple robe, and he looks at Pilate and says, you would have no authority unless my father granted it to you. He's in charge. The whole way he's in charge. That's the most striking thing about this passage. Now, you may be wondering why John doesn't record for us the hours of agony of prayer that Jesus spent in the garden with his disciples. Well, he prayed, they slept. All of the other gospel writers record this. But John does not. Why? 
it's really specul speculative. John doesn't tell us. A couple of possible reasons. First, John probably assumes you, as a good reader of the Bible, have already read the other three Gospels. We, we, in fact, we see that all the way through John, and I pointed that out along the way. This is today, 110 messages into the Gospel of John, and so we've had plenty of opportunity to see this throughout the Gospel of John. And, and John assumes that you have read all the other three Gospels, and so no need to repeat this Secondly, and perhaps more, significant, more significantly, John wants to emphasize the fact that Jesus is not just passively obedient. And we don't find these soldiers storming into the garden. Which one of you is Jesus? Finding him, taking him. Jesus is not just passively obedient, but he is on a personal mission a personal mission to make atonement for the given ones, all of whom the Father has given to the Son. By this time, verse 3, Judas has been given a Roman cohort. The ESV says a band of soldiers. Every scholar I read agrees that he's probably speaking of a cohort of soldiers and that's significant because a cohort consisted of anywhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. Along with the cohort, there was more. There was the temple police force, and there were other straggling members of this band who, who went out to arrest Jesus. They were commissioned to find and arrest Jesus. And notice, they are carrying with them, John says, lanterns, torches, and weapons. They are expecting a full-on pursuit of a fleeing fugitive at night. And who knows how many disciples Jesus has ready to engage in the battle. And so they bring everybody. The powers of darkness are now closing in on Jesus. But notice what happens when they arrive at the garden in search of their prey. Verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things, I'm telling you, John is calculating his word choices to communicate sovereign authority. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. Went forth from where? I take that to mean went forth from the garden. I think he told his disciples, just stay here. They don't appear to be leading the charge, not even Peter. He'll step out here in a minute and do something foolish. <laughs> Knowing all things that were coming upon him, he went forth and said, whom do you seek? Can you imagine? I, I mean, if I saw 200 armed soldiers, I wouldn't talk to them about anything. I'd just get out of the way. And if they're coming for me, I'm running, sorry. I'm just running. <laughs> Not Jesus. One might expect at this point that the fugitive would send some of his men out to cover their tracks so that he could make a clean getaway, but not Jesus. Instead of hiding from his enemies, he steps out of the garden alone to meet them. One man facing upwards of 600 armed ruffians. 
And notice, too, that there's no mention of Judas's kiss in John's narrative. And once again, I attribute that to the fact that John is emphasizing Jesus' intentionality and sovereign control over the whole affair. Jesus wasn't arrested because of Judas's trickery. Jesus was arrested because he intended to be arrested. It was his hour. And notice that it is Jesus who asked the first question. Whom do you seek? To which they respond with what was surely the official verbiage of the warrant. Jesus the Nazarene. Seen him? They didn't know who Jesus the Nazarene was. Some of them apparently. Otherwise they would have said, you. We're looking for you. I mean, they have enough light. They've got 600 torches. We're looking for you. Nope. What's on the warrant? Uh, Jesus, seen his picture? Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus very simply answers, Ego eimi. I am. I am. It's the same phrase he used before on multiple times for which the Sanhedrin picked up stones to kill him. The response to his words is unexpected. Look at verse 6. John says, When he said to them, I am, or I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine? At Jesus' self-disclosure, hundreds of soldiers, and probably Judas, because look how it, it reads, whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who is betraying him, was standing with them. I assume he went down to the ground with them as well. Some believe it was because Jesus used for himself that powerful name of God. Ego eimi, I am. Just the name that God used on Mount Sinai when Moses said, okay, so when I get to Egypt, I mean, they're not, I can't just walk in there and say, everybody follow me. When the elders of Israel come and say, who sent you? What should I tell them? And out of the burning bush that wasn't consumed, God said, tell him, I am, has sent you. And when you read back into that like that, you kind of get the impression that maybe that was the second person of the Trinity speaking to Moses. And here he is again. And so some believe that, that this, was, this was reflexive, it was not something that they intended. They just, at the name of God, they fell to the ground. Romans, Jews, whoever was there, all of these men fell to the ground. To be sure, that, that is what he said, I am or I am he. But in the context, it may be that Jesus was simply responding, yes, it is, it is me, I am the one you're looking for. And so on the other hand, perhaps, it was the unexpected appearance of the very one all of these men were prepared to do battle against that made them all fall to the ground. It was a shock. They didn't know what to do. 
And so they just went down. Or maybe, as D.A. Carson suggests, it was yet another instance of people responding better than they knew for reasons unknown to us. And that's true. We, we don't, it's, we're not given full explanation here. So in any case, however, however it may seem to us, it does seem evident that John is highlighting this very specific example of Jesus on the offensive. And everyone else is simply responding to him. And this is terrific. This is amazing. How do you get 600 men to do what you want when they're all coming after you? For Jesus, all he had to do was speak. And this crowd of men, as they lay on the ground, here they are, maybe with Judas as well, on the ground, for whatever reason, and he looks at them and, and says, I, I ask you again, <laughs> whom do you seek? And they, I imagine, rather sheepishly said, Jesus the Nazarene? And notice what Jesus says. Verse 7. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Verse 8. Jesus says, I told you that I am he. I told you. And the one you're seeking is me. And notice what else he says. So if you seek me, let these, that is his 11 disciples, let them go. Now, Here's what Jesus is saying. I surrender. Here are my terms. I'm in charge here. If you want me, let my men go. This is worthy of special note. I mean, here Jesus could have argued that he had done nothing worthy of arrest. He could have pointed out Judas's treachery in an attempt to discredit their informant. He could have simply walked through their midst and escaped in the way he had done in the past. But no, his concern is not self-preservation. His concern is propitiation. He has come to satisfy the wrath of God. He has come to drink the cup of the furious wrath of God. And no one would keep him from doing that. His hour had come. It was time to be arrested. It was time to suffer. It was time to be mocked and scourged and crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the whole point of his passion was to save his disciples and those who would believe because of their testimony. His mission was to rescue and protect them. He knows he's leaving. You remember in chapter 17, he said, Father, I have kept them in your name. Now, as I go to the cross, would you keep them? You keep them in your name. His mission was to rescue and protect them. 
And so he says to the cohort of soldiers, if you seek me, then let these go their way. And then to make sure that we don't miss the greater implication of this statement, John adds, by way of commentary, verse 9, this was to fulfill the word which he spoke in chapter 17. Of those whom you have given me, I lost how many? Not a one. Not a one. Perhaps Jesus knew that their faith was not yet strong enough to endure being rest arrested. That would come after the resurrection. They would be arrested gladly. But now, it wasn't time for that. For now, he must protect them. And so he did. But Peter almost ruined the whole thing. Verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. I think John just puts that in there to say, you want to check the facts? Look for Malchus, associate or relative of the high priest. So, here we are. Clearly, impetuous Peter was trying to kill Malchus, not wound him. But he, being a fisherman rather than a soldier, missed the mark and only got the ear. Dr. Luke tells us that Jesus, though he rebukes Peter, he also graciously performs a miracle. Right here, when he's being arrested, he's still sovereignly in control, and he's still caring for people. He heals Malchus. In Matthew's account, Jesus assures Peter that if he wanted to defend himself, he could have called down 12 legions of angels. I looked up legion. Minimally, Jesus was saying, Peter, your sword. Look, I'm God. 36,000 angels, if I need them, like that. And I would really only need one. I don't need your sword. Take your toothpick, put it back in your pocket. It's not why all this is happening in Peter. And Jesus explains, verse 11, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? That's why we're doing this, Peter. It's why I'm here. My hour has come. I've told you again and again and again, and you haven't understood, and I understand that. You will understand because you will have the Holy Spirit. But think about it. This is why I've come. Now is the hour and we're not going to miss it. The cup that the Father has given me to drink, I intend to drink every single drop. So put your sword away. You see, beloved, this is what it's all about. Peter didn't understand it, that the other disciples were still in the dark, certainly the 600 soldiers had no idea either, nor did Judas. But Jesus knew why he came. He came to drink the cup of his father's wrath. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice of atonement. Years later, John would write in 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. 
Not that we love God. It's almost as if John's saying, that's a ridiculous proposition. Here is love. I'll say it again. Wrath, judgment, fury, fire. This is love. This passage is about the love of God. This passage is about the grace of God. The grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us from the wrath of God. In this is the love of God. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus was showing himself the personification of God's love and grace to sinners. And nothing could stop him from drinking that cup. Not Judas, not the Roman soldiers, not the the temple police force, not even the Sanhedrin, not even Peter. God was placing the cup in his hands to save us as he promised, and Jesus would willingly, intentionally, and sovereignly drink every drop. Beloved, that's grace. That's grace. He just sang it, and I sang it with you. I love this song. Grace and peace. Oh, how can this be? The matchless king of all paid the blood price for me. Slaughtered lamb, what atonement you bring. The vilest sinner's heart can be cleansed, can be free. Oh, what an amazing mystery. What an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. There aren't enough songs with this depth. That's a different sermon. (laughs) So we see the cup of propitiation. But John also shows us that this cup was also the cup of substitution. The cup of substitution. Now, we've already seen the idea of substitution here in verse 8, where Jesus offers himself in order to set his men free. Nevertheless, it becomes even more explicit here. Look at verses 12 through 14. So the Roman cohort and the commander, a commander is probably commander of a thousand, uh, based on the term that's used here. And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. A high priesthood kind of passed from father to son to, to son-in-law. It was, it was kind of a family thing. And the Romans were involved. They kind of deposed Annas and put his son-in-law in his place for reasons we don't need to discuss here. Verse 14. Now, now here, here's the, the pertinent verse. And this is commentary from John. John's explaining to us. He wants us to see certain things along the way. Otherwise, he would have just given us narrative. But now he's giving commentary, and he says, verse 14, Now, Caiaphas was the one who would advise the Jews, that is the Sanhedrin, that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. This is what John wants us to see. There really is no need otherwise for John to explain who Caiaphas is. He's already mentioned him in chapter 11. 
that he had served as high priest. Two of the other Gospels mention him by name at least three times. We know Caiaphas. No, John is not introducing him to us for the sake of introductions. John introduces Caiaphas here to point us once again to the most important thing, namely, Jesus came to die as a substitute for sinners. He came as the Lamb of God who would die that we might live. One such person who needed desperately for Jesus to die in his place was another one of his apostles, Peter. His denial of Jesus is so important to the gospel narrative that all four gospel writers record it. Different aspects of it, but the same denial. The remainder of this passage kind of flips back and forth between Jesus' mistreatment and Peter's denial and betrayal. And once again, we see that while the cross was the decisive payment of our debt on Jesus, in Jesus' blood, it was not the totality of the suffering of the Messiah. His suffering seemed to come from every direction. We expect it to come from the Jews at this point, not because they're Jewish, but because they'd set themselves against him from the beginning. We expect it to come from the Romans. I mean, they were Gentiles. They didn't care. An opportunity to crucify someone, bring it. We might be surprised to learn that it would come from Judas, but we know the gospel well enough to know that shouldn't have been a big surprise. He was the disciple turned traitor. But Peter? That Jesus would suffer by the actions of Peter? I mean, this was the premier disciple. This is the one who spoke for the whole group. Peter? That Jesus would suffer by his actions? That's unexpected. It's surprising. We thought Peter was too good for that. I mean, Peter was on top of things. He was the leader Look at verses 15 through 18. Simon Peter was following Jesus. Actually, I think he was following John who was following Jesus. He's not running away like the other disciples, but he's not taking the lead either. We'll see that as we go. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. And that disciple, um, it is not crystal clear, it's not perfectly clear that this was John, but almost everybody agrees that this was John. John, uh, in case you didn't know, John never names himself in the book of John. He's, humility requires him to leave himself out. But he couldn't write this without referencing himself, so he does it in cryptic, cryptic ways. Now that disciple, that is this other disciple, was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. He's behind so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then, verse 17, the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. 
Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, with them standing and warm, warming himself. Now this first denial, easy, easy. The girl at the gate asks, who cares what she thinks? And she's making it easy. She's saying, you're not one of his disciples. All you got to do is say, right. Not. Doesn't feel like much. Doesn't. It's a little compromise. But I want to get in. I want to be with my Lord. I want to be faithful. Might require a little compromise here. You get the picture? As you read through this, there's a stark contrast going on. And John wants us to see it. That's why he keeps flipping back and forth. While Jesus suffers to save Peter, Peter denies any association with Jesus to save himself. This highlights the fact that what Jesus is saving us from is not simply a principle of sin, not some kind of general sin that stains humanity, although it is both of them. No, Jesus died to save us from the active sin of our hearts. Active sin that manifests itself through our personal desires, our words, our choices, our behavior. You see, I think the reason Peter's denial is in all four Gospels, there's a reason for it. And I think it's this. Peter represents us. And every gospel writer knew it. No, 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 we're not going to skip this. I should have been there. I could have been the one to deny him, but I wasn't even there to deny him. I just ran. Put Peter's denial in. Oh, how we like to think, if only we had been there, we would have done everything in our power to free Jesus, and we would have never lied or denied Beloved, every time I read the story of Jesus' lawless arrest and illegal interrogation and brutal abuse by this bloodthirsty religious group of hypocrites in the house of the high priest, I look across the courtyard and I see me. He wasn't some wicked, incarcerated criminal whose only hope was that Jesus would somehow post bail and get him out of jail. It's me. No matter how highly I may think of myself or how holy others may think of me, I am Peter. And worse, I am Barabbas. And I have denied him not three times, but 3,000 times. And yes, many of those denials have taken place after I said I believe. I deny him every time I should identify myself with him before my friends or acquaintances, but allow myself to be ruled by fear instead. I deny him every time I have a clear opportunity to share the gospel, but keep my mouth shut to protect myself. I deny him with every moral compromise whenever I assert my own will over his revealed will for me. 
Peter is in every gospel because you are Peter. And until you see yourself as Peter, you will know nothing of Christ. You will know nothing of Christ. You will not be able to sing from the heart, all I have is Christ. So long as you downplay your sin as if it were nothing to make much of, you belittle Christ. You deny that you have any association with him. And one day, he may deny you. You say, well, Pastor Dan, that's not very encouraging this Sunday morning. You're right. It's supposed to be convicting. Because it does you no good to believe that Jesus is the Christ if you don't also believe that you desperately need him. Anybody can say Jesus is Lord, but nobody can say it by the Spirit unless he sees his own sin and hates it and knows I don't need an example. I don't need Jesus to help. I need him to be my substitute. I need him to stand in my place. It's my only hope. It's my only hope. I stand before God. I'll be nothing but a piece of burnt toast when it's done. I gotta stand behind him. He must be my substitute. He must bear the full fury of the wrath of God for me. We'll come back to this in just a minute because John's going to flip us back there. But let's go the other direction. Cross the courtyard the other way. By the way, Annas and Caiaphas apparently lived in the same duplex. They shared a patio. Seriously. I mean, they were like castles. but They were right next to each other. They were like mansions, not castles. And so most archaeologists think that they take him to Caiaphas, who's not high priest at the time, but he's the most venerated of the living high priests. Annas is the son-in-law, but they're going to go get counsel, first of all, from Annas. When Annas is done, they're going to take him across the courtyard. Peter is in the courtyard. So you remember from the other Gospels that when the cock crows, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. How can that be possible? Because Jesus is in the courtyard over here, and then he's in the courtyard over there, and Peter is right there in the middle of the courtyard. They can see each other. They're close enough that if they wanted to, they could have spoken to one another. Look at verses 19 through 21. The high priest then, that's, this is Annas, and we'll come back to Caiaphas as we, as we get further along in chapter 18, but the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I take that to be disciples first. Look, theology, we're not, I'm not terribly concerned about theology. I want to know how many men do you have? What are we up against? And your theology too. He questioned him about his, teach, his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I've spoken to you openly 
I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I have said. You say, well, that's kind of evasive. On its face, it appears that way. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not evading the question. Once again, Jesus is the one in charge here. And he is not intimidated in the least by the high priest. What the high priest, Annas, didn't understand is that he was sitting in the presence of the great high priest. Yes, they were asking him questions, but he responds by reminding them of the illegality of forcing the accused to testify against himself. They were supposed to question others about him, and he exhorts them to do so. And for that, he gets a punch in the mouth. Verse 22, when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck him, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? But even in the face of police brutality, Jesus doesn't even flinch. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of my wrong. Where is the testimony? But if rightly, why do you strike me? Listen, there there are so many ways that this trial was illegal. I mean, according to the law of the day, the Jewish law, the Uh, there was not supposed to be a trial at night. The accused was not supposed to be forced to defend himself. Other witnesses were to be brought in. And they were not even to hold the trial until a full day after the arrest. Cooling off period. And that's just three. There are probably ten ways that their own law was broken. They're doing this in secret. They're breaking every rule of jurisprudence that applies here. So Annas, Annas makes no response. Jesus has the last word. Annas simply sends him bound now to Caiaphas, the high priest, across the courtyard, passing by Peter. Charcoal fire. It's had to be really uncomfortable for Peter. Charcoal doesn't burn very hot. Not much light, not a lot of heat you got to get really close. And so everybody standing there was standing really, really close. Peter was really nervous about this whole thing. But even in the face of this brutality, Jesus, Jesus holds his own. This is a kangaroo court pretending to be defenders of legal justice. And Jesus keeps pointing out how they actually and repeatedly show themselves to be lawless imposters. And so he gets sent across the courtyard, verses 25 and 26. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. There he is in the courtyard. So they said to him, we don't know who they are, probably the people standing by the fire with him. You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. And said, I am not. And one of the slaves 
of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden? This was an eyewitness. Somebody else in the courtyard was in the garden, and this somebody is related to the high priest. And in the commotion, he apparently didn't get a good look at the person who tried to kill his relative. But he's suspicious. You have to get the sense of how fearful Peter must have been at this moment as he stood in the courtyard. After all, he did attempt to commit murder that night. And one of the relatives of the victim who lost his ear, that relative was in the very courtyard. What would have happened to him if word got out? Peter, you know, was imagining all kinds of horrific things. You remember in John 13, after Peter had professed his willingness to die for the Lord, you remember that? He's, Jesus was saying, I'm, they're at the Lord's table. He's just celebrating the Lord's table, and Jesus is telling them, one of you is going to betray me, and you will all scatter. And Peter said, scatter? Are you crazy? I'll never leave you. I'll die for you. And Jesus retorted, that Peter would not even see the next sunrise. I mean, okay, so it's been 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Now we're in 18, so it's been five chapters ago since that happened. And who knows how many sermons. And we think, well, that was a long time ago. Big distance between when Jesus made that prophecy and now, no, it was the same night. The sun will not rise again until you have denied me three times. The cock will crow. Now, one scholar points out that the third trumpet, the third watch trumpet was called the cock crow. That would be interesting if it were true. There's no way to identify it. In any case, Peter, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So here we are, already, while standing in the courtyard, Peter is denied his Lord twice. And then someone said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Verse 27 reads, then Peter denied him again. And Matthew tells us that on the third occasion, he denied it with cursing and swearing. And John tells us, immediately, the rooster crowed. And the other gospel writer says, and Jesus turned his head and looked at Peter. Can you imagine? I don't think a look of condemnation. I think it was a look that said, I'm in charge, Peter. Everything's going to be okay. It's amazing, isn't it? And Jesus knew exactly the kind of sinner that you and I were going to be and the kind of sin we are capable of even before we uttered our very first word, but he loved us anyway. And he is there every time we sin. Where can I flee from your presence? And he loves us anyway. As Paul will later say, where sin abounds... Grace super abounds. Now let me be clear. 
This is no indication that our sins are anything less than catastrophically wicked. Rather, it is an indication that Christ is incomparably glorious. Here's a snapshot of our relationship, the relationship between Peter and Christ. And this is the perfect picture of the relationship between you and Christ, if you know him. You want to know the difference between Judas and Christ? They both served as his disciples. They both performed miracles, we assume, in his name. They both betrayed him. But unlike Judas, Peter loved Jesus. And it broke his heart when he saw how wicked he really was. And he wept bitterly. And he repented at the first opportunity. I can't wait to get to John 21. I was tempted to go there this morning and see how Jesus wraps up these three denials with compassion and grace. Peter humbled himself and repented. After the resurrection, Peter, Peter got it. He understood. He came to see that, that Jesus died because he had to die if anyone was going to be saved. He had to die under the wrath of God. He had to die in Peter's place. And this is exactly what Jesus did for all of the given ones. He came to make propitiation. He came to be the substitution. He came to stand in my place, in Peter's place, and in your place. What does this narrative require of you today? How will you respond to the, to the story of Jesus drinking the bitter cup of his father's wrath on your behalf? It will have one of two effects. It will either further harden you or it will soften you. You will either walk away from him again or you will worship him. Pray you choose the letter. He drank the Father's cup, as we will see over the coming weeks. The next four weeks, we will see it, detail by detail. He drank the bitter cup of his Father. It was a cup of propitiation. It was a cup of substitution. It was the cup of the fullness of the terrible fury of the wrath of God. And he drank it all for you. Because from the beginning... Jesus was determined to stand in your place and suffer God's wrath so that we could be saved. Isn't that glorious? Beloved, I pray you don't get bored with the gospel. I pray as we go through these things that you won't say, oh, there's that old, old story again. I've heard this 10,000 times. I hope it's fresh for you every time as it is for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these awesome and glorious truths. And we miss it because we tend to read it so quickly. So I praise you. I praise you that you've commanded us to meet together, to listen to your word because we are, we are so distracted and so incapable of listening, truly listening clearly and intently to your word. So, Father, we praise you for this time. Praise you 
that you have slowed us down long enough to drink the cup of blessing, which we drink every time we read your word. Through it, you, you supply for us rivers of your delights. And in your house is fullness of joy. So we praise you and we give you thanks. I pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who is held to a low view, an oops view of sin. Today they would see the reality of its wickedness and what it cost Jesus to pay for it. And that you, by your grace, would grant them the capacity to repent. Lord, we pray all of this for your glory and in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.